Pastor Doug here from Crossroads. It's great to be with you. I hope that today's message will draw you closer to Jesus. So let me ask you a philosophical question. We'll start out thinking this morning. How many of you, if you know something is going to happen to you that's bad, if you know something bad is going to happen to you, how many of you would love to know ahead of time? And how many of you would rather not know it all and just face it in the moment? All right, how, how many would rather know ahead of time? Depends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Not know. Someone who, how many of you don't want to know? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty split. Yeah. Well, I had a similar situation once. Most of the time, you cannot control whether you know it or not, as you probably are well aware. Uh, but one time, I was in college. I was playing on the basketball team in college, and it was a Saturday road game, and we played horrible. I mean, we were awful. We couldn't do anything right. We lost to a team that we never should have lost to. And as it happened in this game, what that meant was uh, afterwards on the bus ride home, as we're, we're heading back, all of the starters sat in the back of the bus to avoid the coaches. And me being a first-year new player, mostly a bench guy at this point, uh, I got stuck sitting right behind the coaches. And I'm listening to them go back and forth, talking about our performance, talking about how they're going to deal with our performance. And then I hear the phrase, well, it looks like Monday at practice, we're getting the trash cans out. Now, if you've been in a practice like this, you know what I'm talking about. But for everybody else, what this means is he's going to run us so hard in practice. And then afterwards, we're going to do so many sprints that all of us are going to be throwing up. And now I've got several days to think about the fact that this is coming to me on Monday. Uh, not exactly a great start to the weekend. And so I thought, all right, now that I know that I'm going to have to face this coming up, what am I going to do about it? So I thought, all right, I'm going to prepare for this. I'm going to steal my mind to the fact that this is coming. I'm not getting out of it. There's nothing I can do about it. And then I'm going to work to prepare I'm going to prepare one of the best ways I can. I'm not going to eat a ridiculous amount of junk that day because I don't want that coming back up. So I worked on prepare and prepared on my readiness to face what the negative was coming my way. Well, this is week two in our series on the seven churches of Revelation. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the idea that these were letters, they were messages from Jesus sent to these churches. They were originally sent to John. John wrote them down and sent them as letters to these churches while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. So today we're going to be looking to the letter to the church at Smyrna. No, not quite that Smyrna. We're not going to Georgia today. This Smyrna, yes, this Smyrna uh, was one of the churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. So all of these churches were in modern-day Turkey. And this particular church uh, was a wealthy city. It's, the city of Smyrna was a wealthy city. They were kind of in competition and rivalry with the city of Ephesus, kind of like how New York and L.A. are often rivals. They were part of the Roman Empire. And they had a large Jewish community. 
And this letter is written to the Jewish Christian church in that community. So let's dive in to the letter. We're going to look at what it meant to Smyrna, and then we're going to see if we can pull anything out of it that are relevant for us today. So let's begin in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. So starting out in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and overcame or came to life again. Now we'll stop right there for a second. As we read through these letters to the various churches, one thing you'll notice and one thing to pay attention to is that Jesus gives himself a different title in every single one of these letters. It's different in every single one. And each one is a descriptor that's specifically tailored to the message that Jesus is giving to each one of the churches. Each one is a reference to a specific characteristic of Jesus. And it was to serve as a reminder to them of a specific attribute of God that they need to be aware of and that they need to be focused on. Now, what this specific descriptor means in light of this church, we'll come back to that in a minute. So let's continue. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So now we start getting into it. Now we get into the message about what is actually happening in this church at this moment. Afflictions, poverty, slander against them. Now, as we said earlier in our descriptor, Smyrna was a rich city, yet the Christians in this city were poor. Now, there's a very good reason for that. As a result of their faith, as a result of them following Jesus, they were regularly robbed of their possessions. On top of which, a lot of them got fired from their jobs because of their beliefs, which led to a level of poverty in this community and in this church. Not to mention, they were facing slander from their fellow Jews who were not Christians. In fact, these Jews would inform on them to the religious or to the Roman authorities. And this was especially a big deal because it meant that the Jews were often kicked out of the synagogues. And it meant that they no longer had the religious freedom and protections that the Romans offered to the Jews. See, in that time, uh, the Jews had a level of religious freedom because the Roman culture viewed the Jewish God as more ancient than their own. So they had a level of religious freedom. They were exempted for some of the emperor cult type worship things that everyone else was required to do. But as these Jews kicked the Christians out of their synagogue and then reported them to the Roman officials, now all of a sudden these Christians were not part of an ancient religious culture, but a new religion and therefore subject to the rules of Rome which led to persecution from the Jews and from the Romans. And what does Jesus say to them 
about what's going on in this church at that moment. He says, I know. I know. Have you ever been carrying a heavy burden? Have you ever been going through something and you feel like you're all alone in the struggle? All alone in the fight? You're tired. You're weary. You're worn out. And you're just trying to hold it all together. And then a friend comes up to you. And they say to you, I see you. I see that you're struggling. I know that you're going through something incredibly hard. Does that not just ease your burden even a little bit? It's such a relief to know that somebody else knows, that somebody else cares, and that you're not alone in the struggle. And that's what Jesus is telling them. He's saying, I know. I know what you're going through. I see you. I see what's going on. I see you in your struggles. Now, this is the part of the story where we want Jesus to show up and fix it, to put an end to the suffering, to right all the wrongs, to vanquish all the enemies. That's what we want. I mean, that's what would happen in the movie version, right? God shows up miraculously and something happens and changes everything. In fact, in, in movie circles, there's actually a, there's a technique for this. It's called deus ex machina. It means when you're writing and there seems to be no hope, some sort of miraculous thing or some godlike character shows up and fixes it all. But the other part of that, a deus ex machina is also kind of considered lazy writing because it doesn't reflect reality. And the same is true in this story. So we want God to show up and fix it. The people of Smyrna wanted Jesus to show up and fix it. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus warns them of what's to come. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. About? About to suffer? We're already suffering. What are you saying, Jesus? Is there more suffering to come? Yes. Yes, there is. He continues. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is to come for them? Prison. Persecution. Death. And Jesus is saying to them, Hear my words. Hear what I'm saying to you. Hear my admonition. This is not a word they would have wanted to hear. I mean, can you imagine being in the place of that church of Smyrna? Imagine initially when they heard they had a letter from John, they were excited. And even more so once they realized that this letter from John was actually a message from Jesus. But then as they read over these words we've just read, I can imagine the mood got a lot more somber. Their immediate future would not be one of improvement, but one of more suffering. And I can imagine there was some doubt and some discouragement 
as a result of that. So how do they process this message? How do they process it? What do they do about it? Back to our philosophical question. If you know something bad is going to happen, and now they do, what do you do about it? Now they have to prepare for what is to come. But first, this is not a letter of total doom and gloom. If we look at it again, throughout the letter is sprinkled a sense of deep hope. Let's look back at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. See, they may have been poor materially, but Jesus is telling them they have something that's even more valuable. They have spiritual riches. They're rich in ways that matter to God, which means they're ways that matter more than anything else. And in verse 10, he tells them, do not be afraid of what they're about to suffer. Why not? I mean, we're talking about prison, persecution, death here. Why should they not be afraid? Well, that's where we'll go back to our descriptor at the beginning of this in verse 8. It says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last and who died and came to life again. What is Jesus saying about himself that they need to pay attention to? He's reminding them he was around before they were. He's going to be around after they are. He's been there. He's seen it all. Nothing surprises him. He's in control. And he's reminding them, keep in mind, I have already conquered death. I have already conquered death. So don't be afraid. Be faithful instead. Trust in me. I'm eternal. I've conquered death. There is hope. And there is reward on the other side. Verse 10 and 11. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. If you are faithful, there will be a reward. There's hope and a better place on the other side. They do not have to fear judgment. There is hope beyond this world. This is one of the only churches in this sequence where Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about them. There is hope for them. So what does this letter say to us? What are the messages that carry forward throughout the centuries that meet us here today as we look at them? Well, I think there are a couple of key things that we can take away from this that we can learn here as the American church. And the first one is this. Following Jesus often results in suffering. Now, this is one of the hardest things for us in America, as the American church, to truly get, to truly understand. We have enjoyed unprecedented levels of religious freedom in the U.S. We don't really understand suffering as the American church. In fact, for most of us on a Sunday morning, the closest thing we come to suffering is when someone sits in our area. Oh, man. Someone sits in our area. What are we going to do? 
even worse, then we have to sit on the other side of the auditorium. I mean, what are you going to do? God doesn't speak to me on the other side of the auditorium. Sorry, people. It's not about you. But that's, that's what the case is. We don't understand suffering. We've enjoyed cultural and legal protection to practice and live out our faith. And for that, we should be unbelievably grateful. But as a result of that, as a result of that, it can lead to us holding some false understandings about the nature of our faith. One of the things that can happen to us is that we can believe that following Jesus means an end to all our hardship, means an end to anything bad happening in our life. And that life is really about our own personal happiness. And some of this is the result of bad theology. I mean, the prosperity gospel that was going around a while ago was an example of this. But also, do not underestimate the power of the message our culture keeps telling us that life is about our own self-defined happiness. But this type of thinking is only possible in a culture in which the church is not suffering. If you ask the church in places like China and some other places, they are under no illusions that following Jesus is going to result in suffering. And we can be lured into the false belief that we, here in America, as Christians, won't face any suffering. That's been our history. And we have protections, legal protections, that are supposed to hold us in place. And it would be very easy for us to be caught unprepared for suffering. So what should we be preparing for? What might be coming our way? Where might suffering or persecution come from? I believe that you don't have to look very far down the road to envision a level of persecution coming at the church that we haven't seen before. And a lot of it comes from culture. See, we used to live in a culture whose foundations were of Judeo-Christian foundations, where we had a basic understanding that morality was something transcendent, that it required a level of faith. But as our culture has shifted and has worked at rejecting that foundation, it's increasingly moving toward a morality based not on faith, not on anything transcendent, but on self. And we are replacing belief in God with ideologies and cultural pathologies. Things our culture values are shifting towards things that are antithetical to Christian teaching and our understanding of the world. And Christianity is increasingly being seen not as a viable choice, but as part of the problem. And as a result, Christianity has fallen in mainstream cultural favor. If we look at it on a scale, Christianity used to kind of be seen as necessary, as a necessary part of our faith. And then it kind of fell a little bit to where it wasn't necessary, but it's still an objective good. And then it moved to the place of, you know, it, it was just accepted. It's accepted that you're Christian. And then it moves to a place even further down where it's not really accepted, but it's just kind of tolerated. And I think we're kind of here. We're kind of in a holding pattern right here. But it wouldn't take a whole lot, I think, to push our mainstream culture over the edge to the point where Christianity becomes unacceptable. 
And that can lead to real pressures on the church. As what our culture values shifts, it will elevate things that don't line up with the teachings of Jesus. And churches will feel pressure to compromise what we believe to accommodate cultural trends or face consequences. And I think we could see that in a number of different areas. I think the first one we see that in could be in the realm of legal and in politics. Just as the church in Smyrna faced pressure from political and legal forces, so does the modern church. As our culture continues to drift further and further away from God, we can continue to see escalating questioning of the value and of the very idea of religious freedom and religious exemptions. And as a result, I think we could see slow and steady erosion of religious protections coming our way. And as a result of that, I think you will see churches and religious organizations finding themselves increasingly under threats of lawsuits. We see some of that now, but I think we could really see that increase going forward. The second area that we could see pressure is in our worldview and reality. See, our culture has grown hostile to the Christian worldview and towards the idea of objective truth, and instead proclaiming a self-defined notion of truth and reality. And these viewpoints are increasingly seen as good and right. And as a result, us holding our beliefs about the nature of human nature, marriage, family, sexuality, identity itself, will be increasingly seen as harmful, dangerous, and hateful. And we could see churches threatened to conform or face social pressures or even economic pressures like the church in Smyrna did. We could see things like our tax-exempt statuses revoked or limited access to financial institutions or even technology platforms as a result. Now, these are just some of my thoughts as I look out and I examine culture. Maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe it comes completely differently or it looks entirely differently or maybe something else happens and none of that even takes place. So why are we talking about it? Well, Jesus told the church in Smyrna what was to come, not to panic, not to frighten, but to prepare them and tell them not to be afraid. So here it is. Here's the message. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And something the church must be prepared for, even if we've enjoyed a long run of freedom. We should be prepared in case that changes, in case something switches. So what does it look like to be prepared? What does that look like? How do we prepare for suffering? Well, just a reminder back to my story about basketball and the trash cans. In order to prepare for that, I steeled my mind and I prepared myself. And that's what we have to do in this instance. Preparing ourselves means understanding that suffering is a possibility. Keep that in mind. Suffering is a possibility for us. And we need to guard our hearts and guard our minds. We need to steel our minds by rooting ourselves in Jesus. We need to root ourselves in Jesus. And lastly, we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. Now, before any game, you study your opponent and you study their tactics. Before an army goes to battle, they study their enemy and study 
who is opposing them. Famous Sun Tzu quote, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. So one of our jobs is to know who our true enemy is. If we look back at this passage, in verse 9, we see this. We see, referred to, a synagogue of Satan. The people opposing. It's referred to as a synagogue of Satan. And then later in verse 10, who is putting them in jail? It says the devil is putting them in jail. This is a reminder to us that our ultimate enemy is not culture. It's not those who oppose us, but our ultimate enemy is Satan himself. And it's easy for us to target something more tangible like culture or like specific groups or like our opposition. But we need to keep our eye on the source of where this comes from. The second thing we learn from this is that we need to be faithful in the face of suffering. One of the things that suffering and persecution does is that it forces us to evaluate what we truly believe. Not just in our minds, but in our lives. Just as God used suffering as a test for the church at Smyrna, so hardship will be a test for us, no matter what form that test comes from, whether on an individual level or whether on a societal level or a church level. How will we react as individuals, as the church, when hard times come, times of struggle, times of suffering, times of persecution? In the face of trial and hardship, both now and in the future, Jesus is calling on us to be faithful. And just as he told the church in Smyrna, we can root ourselves to Jesus. We can anchor ourselves to Jesus because he is everlasting. Because he's been there before us and he will continue going on after us. He understands our struggle and our condition. He's given us the tools we need to endure whatever is to come. And we live with the knowledge that he has already conquered death. As a result of that, the third thing we learn from this church is hope. All of these things should lead us not towards fear, not towards resignation, not towards despair, but towards hope. Those who remain faithful will be rewarded. You will be given life. And you do not have to fear death. And you do not have to fear judgment. Matthew 16, 25 says, Whoever wants to, find, wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So what do we learn from this letter to the church at Smyrna? We learn that following Jesus doesn't exempt us from suffering. In fact, often it's the opposite. We must be able to prepare for when hardship and suffering come. And Jesus is calling on us to remain faithful whatever the circumstances we may find ourselves in. And in the end, we have hope and we have a reward. Are you willing to prepare? Are you willing to root yourself in Jesus, in his teachings, and constantly develop your relationship with him, your knowledge, your character? And are you willing to remain faithful, both now and in the future, no matter what it brings? If so, there's a place to respond on your connection card.
And you can say that I will choose to be faithful no matter what the future holds. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We come to you, God, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the messages that you've given to these churches. Messages that help us where we are today. God, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know if the future is going to continue to be one of incredible religious freedom where we are free to live out our faith as we see. Or if it will be one filled with increasing hardship, persecution, and suffering. But what we do know, God, is that you are with us. That you've gone before us and you will go after us. You've seen everything there is to see. You're in control. God, help us today to lean into you, to draw close to you, to be faithful to you, whatever may come our way. And God, you have not promised us that it will be easy, but you have promised that you will be there. And you have promised that in the end, no matter what, we have hope and we have a reward waiting for us if we are willing to be faithful. Thank you for everything that you've given us and for the opportunity we have to draw close to you and prepare for whatever is to come. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. Any step you take towards Jesus is a step in the right direction. You can find out more about us at crbic.org. That's crbic.org. Thank you.